I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Let me get my head around this. You drop out of journalism in Washington, D.C., move to Miami, and end up working for a detective agency that's a front for a major drug operation with CIA connections. Yeah. How stupid can you be, right? (laughs) Phil, I've I've known you for a long time and you're many things, but you're not stupid. You're going to have to tell me how you got caught up in all of this. Yeah, it's something I've been trying to figure out myself for years now. And the guy you replaced was murdered? Yeah. It started... When I took the place of the detective, the guy had been murdered. But that was just for starters. It got crazier as time went on. And if I do say so, it's a pretty good story. I'm Lauren Bragg Pacheco, and this is Murder in Miami. Journalist Phil Stanford and I first crossed paths during my first podcast, Happy Face, about Keith Hunter Jesperson, the serial killer and rapist. In the 1990s, Stanford was the newspaper reporter at the Oregonian who'd received an anonymous letter from Jesperson, basically bragging about his kills, creepily signed with a smiley face. As a result, Stanford coined the Happy Face Killer moniker, and it stuck. Yeah, I certainly don't take credit for the happy face nickname. That was him. That was Keith Jesperson. He drew all those little happy faces. That's who he wanted to be. Stanford ended up connecting with the hulking, nearly six foot eight killer in person for a pretty interesting reason. After he was arrested, he wanted credit for a murder that two people were already serving time for. And I had written about those two people trying to point out that the case against them was completely full of it. Jesperson was coming at it from a slightly different angle. He wanted credit. Stanford's subsequent reporting helped prove Jesperson had indeed killed 23-year-old Tanya Bennett and contributed to getting the two people already serving time for her murder out of prison. 
But by the time I'd tracked Stanford down, he was pretty sick of talking about Keith Hunter Jesperson. Well, he was certainly no Hannibal Lecter. He was just a big dummy driven by compulsions. He didn't understand himself. When we connected, Stanford, who was at one point the most successful columnist in Oregon, was so tired of talking to people in general, he'd pretty much dropped off the grid, living as far west as he could without falling into the ocean. Yeah, it was one of the more remote places in the United States, I think. Gold Beach, Oregon, which is down at the southern tip of Oregon on the coast, just above the California line. After some politely persistent stalking, Stanford begrudgingly agreed to be interviewed. (laughs) I'm glad you finally found me, yes. Well, to get to you, I had to go through your publishers who were (laughs) quite pragmatic in letting me know that they could reach out to you, but the likelihood was that you would want nothing to do with me. (laughs) The Bill Stanford I'd grow to know was extremely private and more than a bit guarded and cynical. Understandable, given the story that motivated his departure from his career as a reporter due to the politics that surrounded the 1989 murder of Michael Frankie. The head of the Oregon's Corrections Department had discovered a rat's nest of corruption in his department and was going to expose it, clean house. And he was murdered. He was assassinated out in front of the the building where he worked in Salem, Oregon, stabbed to death. That was the night before he was supposed to address a Senate committee on the subject. Using his newspaper column as a platform, Stanford started relentlessly questioning Frankie's highly suspicious murder and the guilt of the low-level drug dealer it was penned on, all while calling out the corruption that surrounded the case. And it was denied, denied, absolutely denied that his murder could have had anything to do with corruption because, of course, there was no corruption in Oregon. And I was writing a column for the Oregonian at the time, smelled a rat, and I, I kept raising questions. Doing so would ultimately cost Stanford his job and take its toll. When we first met in person, here's how I described Phil. Phil's a fiercely loyal guy with a choppy head of silver hair that matches the stubble of his beard and soft brown eyes that seem to have seen a bit too much of the corruption he writes about. Thirty years after Michael Frankie's death, the Murder in Oregon podcast would again raise questions about Oregon's Department of Corrections and corruption. A new hit podcast called Murder in Oregon is uncovering new information about the stabbing death of 42-year-old Michael Frankie. In the process, Phil and I would become pretty good friends, speaking regularly and crossing paths in person whenever possible. That's how I became familiar with his time spent working as a private investigator in Miami. It's a story that just gets crazier and crazier as we go along. And it's one filled with drugs, deception, conspiracies, and more than one extremely questionable killing. Set in a time and place that was equally extreme. Miami in the early 1980s. Pastels and palms, dancers, and a hint of danger. Together they comprise the image of Miami, a city some have described as America's Casablanca. By the 1970s, parts of Miami, especially Miami Beach, had fallen from the glory of its 1930s Art Deco heyday. 
The glamour that carried it through the 1950s and 60s as a trendy tropical hotspot for the jet set had dissipated, and Miami settled into more of a mundane destination for retired snowbirds fleeing snowy northern winters. But as the 80s approached, the city was about to be revitalized by a different sort of white powder. Cocaine comes from the leaves of the coca tree, found chiefly in Peru and Bolivia, then processed in Colombia. About a third of the world's production finds its way to the United States. And its preferred point of entry? Florida. As 1980 approached, Miami was on its way to becoming the skyline built by cocaine and overrun by drug cartels, crowned the murder capital of America. Setting the stage for the salacious scene that would be dramatized and immortalized when the hit television show Miami Vice first aired in 1985. We'll dive more deeply into all of that a bit later. But the Miami Stanford ended up moving into was definitely dangerous. Maybe that's part of what pulled Phil to Miami. Okay, it's 1980. I'm working as a columnist for a political magazine in Washington, D.C. Except I don't like politics or government or military affairs. Written about that, too. And I want to write about crime. Okay, so how did you end up chucking it all and heading to Miami? Well, like I said, I was sick of writing about politics and government. Why wouldn't you just stay in Washington then and write about what you wanted to? Why just walk away from everything that you built in terms of your career? Well, I suppose that's entirely too sensible. But in fact, I had tried to get out of the political rut I was in. I'd actually gone down to Miami for another smaller magazine called Quest and covered a big drug trial. The Black Tuna? Yeah, the Black Tuna case. Drug smuggling was also the topic at federal court today with the beginning of testimony in the government's Black Tuna case. The Black Tuna gang ran Miami's drug trade in the 1970s. The name was coined by the media based on the solid gold medallion with a Black Tuna emblem worn by members to identify themselves. At the time, the Black Tuna gang was alleged by the DEA to be one of the most sophisticated drug smuggling organizations in existence. Federal Judge James King listened as one-time smuggler turned government informant Luke McLeod told of the eight tons of marijuana which he claims to have delivered to the key defendants, Robert Meinster and Robert Platshorn, in 1974 and 1975. The gang was accused of importing around 500 tons of marijuana into the United States over the course of 16 months, operating at one point from a suite in the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami Beach. But we'll come back to all of that later. Back to Phil and his time covering the trial. I remember sitting there in this big courtroom with stone floors. I think they call it Chattahoochee or something like that. And the courtroom was never packed. You know, it was always about a third full. Sometimes there were more defendants up there behind the railing than spectators. Reporters from the local papers in Miami and a few others and me. Was it a big deal of a trial at the time? The government was making a big thing of it. I was always disposed to excuse marijuana smugglers anyway. You know, I thought it was ridiculous that there was a law against this, regardless of how much they were supposed to have smuggled in. And it turns out the government greatly exaggerated the amount they did smuggle. But they charged Platshorn under a kingpin statute that was meant for much heavier drug offenses. And what I really remembered about that is that he got 60 years 
for smuggling marijuana in the United States. Remember the length of that sentence. 60 years. We'll come back to it because it wasn't entirely motivated by drugs. I certainly didn't understand things as well as I might have when they were happening. I think I probably got taken in an awful lot by the government. I was fascinated by the agents, too. They were living a very exciting life and got to know a couple of them. It was way better than Washington, D.C., that's for sure. While Stanford definitely found the trial's topic more compelling than Washington-based politics, he was equally attracted to its setting. I was fascinated by Miami. I was fascinated by the, the whole vibe back then. It was wild. And the Miami assignment was a welcomed break from his usual beat. But other than that, I wasn't having any luck getting any assignments. I remember sitting in the office at Harper's Magazine in New York talking to the editor. I told him I wanted to do stuff on crime, and he wanted me to do some government procedural piece. And I said, oh, my God. And it was about that time I decided to chuck it all and go to Miami. Well, in a way, that kind of makes sense because Miami, particularly at that time, was swimming in crime just in terms of the drug trade and everything. And it must have, on top of being romantic, it must have felt like an outlaw town. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, there was a vibe. There really was. And people were different down there. I mean, D.C. is, is really a, a very boring place. And Stanford was basically bored of his life and the way he was making a living. I was stuck professionally. That's what I meant by wanting to write about crime. But in a way, that's sort of a mental dodge, I suppose. The way we give ourselves more palatable excuses for what's really going on underneath. And it was personal as well. How old were you at the time? I was 38. And of course, there was uh, the divorce. Certainly had something to do with it. I was missing my boys. Phil had two sons with his first wife. After the divorce, she relocated with him to Oregon, leaving Stanford feeling unsettled and a bit adrift. And I was having these dreams every two weeks regularly. I was in a desert somewhere. It was nighttime, just moonlight or starlight, looking out across the desert at a walled city after midnight, you know, still a few lights shining through windows. Maybe a caravan leaving, I remember hearing the camel bills in the dream, and concealing myself behind some sort of sand dune. This walled city is maybe a quarter mile, half mile away, and knowing that I have to get into the city without being noticed and come back with something. I don't know what it is. And so I'm there waiting, waiting to go, but not really daring to go. And starts to get lighter and lighter, hear a rooster crow, and that's it. I have this dream once a week or so, and, and even I can see it. there's some connection with Miami. I'd already been down to Miami for the Black Tuna trial. So the dream is about an opportunity that you're going to miss if you don't make a move. Or something is telling me that there's something I have to find out. I don't know. Yeah. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. 
Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You left Washington in a bit of a rush. Night or two before I left, there was a party at the place where I was living. It wasn't a going away party, it was just a party. Telling everyone talking about going to Miami, and, and, and someone says, do you have a job yet? I, I no. <laughs> and this person is much more practical than I am, I guess, said, well, I know the publisher of a newspaper down there. I'll give him a call, and he'll be expecting to hear from you. Maybe you can work out something there. So I quit my job on very short notice, I'm ashamed to say, load everything into my old beat-up Capri, and head to Miami. Tribute. And driving down, you know, the... It was a huge change from Washington, D.C. It was during the winter months, and in D.C., everything is drab, and you've got the dirty ice, and overcast sky. And the farther south I'd get, the brighter it'd get till 
finally in Miami, the sun just burst upon you and the primary colors. Miami, just, it was a, another world. Bright blue, dark green vegetation, the sea, blue-green sea, lit with uh, sun, and it was, it was a glorious place, it seemed to me. I parked in front of the Miami News Building, which was on the, right on the edge of the bay. I persuade the managing editor of the Miami News, a very nice lady named Gloria Anderson, to give me a job writing what I refer to as detective stories. So you start doing investigative crime stories. Uh, pretty much, yeah. And I liked what I was doing. Long stories divided by chapters, and I, I think readers liked them too. Miami was full of great stories back then, and, and I did several. Un unsolved murders, jewelry heists, pirates off the shore of Andros Island. And then you decided to take on one of Miami's biggest unsolved mysteries. Yeah. I started working on a story about a pretty young 17-year-old girl, Amy Billig, who about, what, five or six years before, had been walking down the street near her home in Coconut Grove on the way to the store or something like that. And she just disappeared, as far as anyone knew, vanished into thin air. No one saw her again, ever. And the mother, to her credit, never let it go. She kept demanding answers. And so I got in touch with the mother, and she had a new lead. Someone had called her. Three o'clock in the morning, called her collect and told her her daughter was alive and well. So, you know, this was well before the, the cell phones or caller ID. She had to go down to the phone company to get the address of the, of the person who called, which she had because she had accepted the call. Someone had called her, turns out, from a little town in Oklahoma, Cement, Oklahoma. So I was going to go out there to Cement, Oklahoma, and solve this case and probably make a name for myself. That's what I was thinking at the time. And how did you do? <laughs> well, at that point, the story was taking too long anyway. After several weeks, Gloria calls me into her office and says the publisher is getting a little bit restive about our little experiment with detective stories. This one is taking too long. He doesn't think it's good use of the time. And if I don't come up with something pretty quick on the Amy Billig case, we would have to reassess our arrangement. And I say, Gloria, but I have a new lead. And I tell her about how, the phone call and how I, I want to go out to Cement, Oklahoma. And all I need is an airline ticket and uh, money for a, a rental car. Come on, if it works out, it's Pulitzer Prize material. And she says, okay, but I'm telling you. So I get my ticket and I get all packed and ready to go. And the night before, I'm with my girlfriend, Ruth, in the Prine Pub. That's where we hung out. Who was Ruth? Did you meet her in Miami? Yeah, she was Gloria's secretary, and we sort of took up together after I started working at the news. She was a very talkative, cute redhead who'd spent some time hanging around uh, with country bands in Nashville. So she had no problem attracting male attention? Uh, none at all. And Stanford's not exaggerating. I tracked down a candid photo of the couple at the time, and it actually looks like a paparazzi shot. It's in black and white, and the two appear to be arriving at some sort of event. 
Phil's glancing back towards Ruth. He's wearing a blazer and a collared shirt, unbuttoned far enough to reveal a disco-era amount of tanned chest. And Ruth is smiling broadly at the camera from underneath thick bangs, her face framed in a wavy mane that just falls past her shoulders. Her vibe is as cool and confident as the silky top that accentuates her slim yet pronounced curves. They made a stunning couple. Here's Ruth, that former girlfriend, recollecting Phil. Well, I met him in the newsroom, Miami News. My first impression was he was basically kind of an explosive personality. Most of our reporters and all were kind of laid back and all that. But Phil was always on charge, very verbal and outspoken, always traveling at 100 miles an hour. There was no down mellow time with Phil, but he was so smart and interesting. Our conversations were just so different than you have with most guys, you know? And Phil was very good looking. Oh yeah, and he had a great body. Okay, back to Phil and Ruth in that bar in Perrine. We were sitting in the bar there, the big horseshoe-shaped bar. And she's telling the bartender about how I'm going out to Oklahoma and I was going to solve the Amy Billick case. And one of the things she's saying to the bartender is that the theory at that time was that Amy Billick had been snatched off the street by some bikers who were coming through town. And down at the end of the bar, a few places away, there's this guy, long hair, sort of good-looking guy who says, say, I'm going to be talking to some bikers here over the weekend. Maybe I can help. And it turns out he's a private investigator. Hands me his card. Says, Clay Williams, Intercept, Detective Agency. I remember a guy doing that, but it didn't register with me that much, you know, because people... When they knew you were reporters, were always giving you their cards. While the offering of the card wasn't noteworthy, Ruth recalls the guy offering it was. I remember he was kind of unusual for that bar. You know what I'm saying? The way he looked and dressed and everything. Do you remember in what way? Well, he was just a little more high rent than most of the customers there. Well-dressed and all that, which the Perrine Pub was the kind of bar you could go in in your pajamas if you wanted to. There's nothing about it sophisticated or chic. And it was very small. It wasn't a big bar at all. That card and the man it belonged to, Clay Williams, would end up having an enormous impact on Stanford and this story. Okay, well, to make a short story short, I fly out to Cement, Oklahoma, get a rental car, go to this little town, just 2,000 population, find the address, knock on the door, and <sighs> the woman there, of course, doesn't look anything like Amy Billig. Her husband's there, and, and the story is they have parties all the time, people coming in and out of the house, and on this particular night, when she... Uh, the mother got the call. They were having one of those big parties. They have no idea who was there. In other words, it was a complete flop. I go back to the airport, get on the plane, go back to Miami, and I know I'm in trouble. Stanford figured he was likely to lose his job at the paper. 
Then he remembered that stranger from the bar, Clay Williams, the private investigator who'd offered to ask the bikers about Amy Billig. So I get out the card for Clay Williams, which I thought I'd never have to use because I was so sure that this was going to be it. And I call the number on it, intercept. Secretary answers. I ask for Clay Williams, and she says, I'm sorry, we don't have a Clay Williams here. And I said, what? She said, no. At this point, Stanford's not only desperate, he's confused and annoyed. So I jump in my car, drive out there. They're actually in Perrine, too. They have nice offices in the Bank of Perrine, third floor. And barge into the office, and I'm waving this card and the secretary, and I said, look, I have his card. It says he works here. And this big burly guy comes out of the office, introduces himself, Bob Adams, he's president of Intercept, come on in and let's talk. And so we go into his office. First thing I notice, there's this big poster of Casablanca behind his desk. Turns out he's something of a romantic. So we talk and he says, sorry about the confusion, but we didn't know who you were when you called. You know, we get all sorts of calls from all sorts of people. But yeah, Clay Williams did some work for us and we haven't been able to get in touch with him for two or three days, I guess it was, and we're worried about him too. And I say, I'm worried about him because I think I may be responsible. Worried Williams wound up in trouble after asking bikers about Amy Billig. Stanford fears it's his fault the guy's gone missing. When he conveyed that to Bob Adams, Adams offered to assist Stanford in his search for Clay Williams. The next few days, they sort of squire me around. It's a dog and pony show. We're looking for Clay Williams. (laughs) And, of course, we don't find him. Did he ever turn up? Oh, yeah. About two weeks later, got a call from Bob. He said they found Clay. He's dead. They found his body in the Everglades. Suddenly, Stanford is really regretting that exchange in the bar. Now I am quite convinced I'm I'm responsible for for Clay Williams' death. I told Bob, too, that I I was worried that I'd caused Clay's death because he was doing research for me. And he says, well, look, you're still working for the the newspaper, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, why don't you go down to the sheriff's office, talk to the detectives working on this case, and see what they know. And so I go down to Miami-Dade Sheriff's Office and tell the person at the entrance that I'd like to talk to the detectives. I'm from the Miami News, and I might have some information that's useful on Clay Williams. One of the detectives comes out, tall, lanky guy, sort of detective issue suit, and leads me back to the room where his partner is, and I sit in front of their desk, and I tell him about the Amy Billy case. I think I might be responsible for this death. And they say right away, no, this has nothing to do with a missing girl. They think it's drugs. And I said, no, 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 no. So we go back and forth. And at a certain point, they start pulling out pictures of Clay Williams' body, Polaroids taken out in the Everglades. And he's just, this is after two weeks now. He's a skeleton with long hair down to his shoulders. Most of the flesh has gone from his face. And the alligators have taken off an arm and and part of a leg. And they they show me more photos of the body. And they say, you better watch what you're getting into. I said, no, I'm I'm fine. And so they just sort of throw up their hands, (laughs) escort me to the door. 
but not without offering Phil a final warning. They said, look, you're involved with some dangerous people here. And I report back to Bob. I call and tell him what I found out. He said, good work, good work. And so that was sort of my first job for Intercept. As a private detective? As a newspaper reporter slash private detective, yes. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. As gruesome as Clay Williams' death may sound, apparently it didn't even make news. I couldn't find any information about it online or in any of the newspaper archives, but that could be because it was just one of an avalanche of murders in that year. 
1980 alone, Miami had a record 573 murders. The Miami-Dade morgue was so overwhelmed with corpses that the medical examiner's office had to lease a refrigerated truck to keep the cascades of bodies on ice. And Miami earned the dubious distinction of being the nation's murder capital, largely as a result of shootouts among cocaine cowboys and violent crimes committed by Marialitos, crime gangs of mostly male Cubans who'd poured into Miami at the time straight from the prisons in Cuba. It was a recipe for violence and volatility. Here's how Ruth, Phil's then-girlfriend, who also worked at the Miami News at the time, remembers it. During those years in Miami, there were so many people that turned up dead. Because anybody that crossed the cartels in any way, they just killed everybody that was home. One of the people that got arrested even said that we just killed everybody that was at home, you know. And there were so many murders that were just inexplicable back then. It was a crazy time in Miami. And a time when drug money fueled the mayhem. As we say in the South, money talks and bullshit walks. Because they had millions of millions of dollars that they were making from that. Money made on supply and demand. During the 80s, the number of Americans abusing cocaine has skyrocketed. In the early part of the decade, this white powder was considered a white-collar drug. Coke was it. Coke was chic. And at $100 a gram, it had the high price tag to match. Cocaine is big business. Americans are spending over $30 billion a year on it. Both suppliers and users are a formidable adversary in the war on drugs. And in 1980, Miami was the undisputed ground zero in that battle. I tell people that that was our Capone era because it was just crazy with all the the killings. That's Israel Reyes, a former circuit court judge of the 11th Judicial Circuit of Florida. Today, he runs his own law firm after nearly 30 years of public service as a judge and assistant state's attorney. I sought him out because from 1980 until 1995, he was also a police officer detective with the Miami-Dade Police Department, where at various times he worked in the Homicide Bureau, Media Relations Section, and Special Investigations Division's criminal conspiracy and racketeering squads. So he was no stranger to drug-related violence. My first exposure to that was when I was still a patrol officer in 1980 or 81, when I was dispatched to a shooting in the new part of Miami Lakes, Florida. Miami Lakes is now an incorporated town, but back then it was just an unincorporated area of Day County. As I arrived on the scene, I was the first officer on the scene that was, the victim was lying in his driveway and he had been peppered with either a Mac-10 or a Mac-11, which is a small handheld submachine gun that was used a lot by the Colombian hitmen. I remember he was lying in his driveway there and the garage door was behind him and the garage door was just littered with holes because they just kept shooting at this guy with this automatic submachine gun. In that era, most, if not all, of Miami's violent crimes were meant to serve as messages or warnings to those who'd crossed the drug cartels or even considered it. You would just hear about these different cases people just being killed. I think there was like eight or nine people killed inside a house in Kendall. 
which was in, you know, the South Bay area, a nice middle class area, eight or nine people killed there. There were a lot of kidnappings for ransom. I mean, it was just day in and day out. Former detective Jeff Lewis, who is now a private investigator, started out as a uniformed officer in the Liberty City area of Miami in 1980, before going on to become an undercover detective, robber detective, and homicide detective in Miami-Dade. He also gave me his take on the times. I would categorize it as the wild, wild west. (laughs) Every day, somebody was getting shot, murdered, robbed, victimized. Crime was definitely out of control in that particular time. Buoyed by the influx of drug-related conflicts, the crime wave hit with a gruesome severity not before seen in the U.S. It started in Miami, because that's where the money was, and that's where the people that wanted to make money came. The term home invasion robbery was coined in Miami. You didn't have home invasion robberies in L.A. or Chicago or New York like we did in Miami. That's where it started, because that's where the drug trade really started and blew up. One of our sergeants coined the term home invasion robbery. Wow. And so that was a direct result of the influence of the violence that the cartels brought with the business. Absolutely. I mean, you know, between the Colombians, the Marielito, and a lot of those Cubans that came over, everybody saw the movie Scarface. I mean, that's what would happen. If you were a criminal and you came to Miami from Mariel, if you didn't become a drug dealer, you became a drug robber. And then you would recruit those to work for you. And usually those were people you were in prison with in Cuba. So it was a big, vicious cycle. And it was a business. You had two businesses with that. You had the drug dealers, and then you had the people that were robbing the drug dealers. So our hands were full because we had to deal with both of them, both groups. And they were vicious. And they were nasty. I mean, these guys were ruthless. Victims were hurt so bad they had to call the police or an ambulance or go to the hospital. And otherwise, they probably wouldn't even call the police. We would have uncooperative victims. Yeah, that was a problem as a robber detective. And it was very prevalent. And so it was also pretty prevalent that many of these crimes went unsolved, especially ones involving discarded bodies, like the body of Clay Williams. During that specific time, they had what they would call body dumps out in the Redlands or out in the swamp areas or anywhere outside of the cities. Sometimes they would get the individual identified. Sometimes they wouldn't. But a lot of those cases turned out to be drug-related, and they didn't get the assistance from the victim's families because they were either too afraid or they were also involved in the drug trade. So a lot of those cases went unsolved. But it was basically drug dealers killing other drug dealers. And if the rise in drug dealing was linked to the rise in body counts, so was the violence those bodies endured before being found. You just don't go kill, kill. A lot of times, either that person stole from you lied to you, did something to your family in regards to drugs, or they knew where a big stash was or whatever. So they're going to torture you. They're going to kill you. Now they've got to get rid of the body out there in the Everglades, go out there where nobody goes in the middle of the night, dump the body and leave. No ID. Sometimes you might pull the teeth, cut the fingers off, maybe the head. You know, you don't want the body to get identified. Or you put it in there and hope the gators will get it. That's not a myth. I mean, there's been plenty of bones found in the Everglades. Even today, I'm sure there's bones still out there. But I'd say that's part of the deal. It's the cost of doing business in the drug trade and crossing somebody. Phil, Miami and the situation you were walking into sounded outright dangerous. Didn't you realize any of this? Well, sure I did. When I was at the news, I had written a front-page story about how Miami had become the murder capital 
of the United States. I just looked at the FBI crime statistics and did the necessary arithmetic, and it had the highest per capita rate of murders in the United States. It eclipsed Houston, New York City, it was Murder City, USA. Kind of interesting that after it appeared on the front page, I mean, it was a banner headline across the front page. The delegation from the Chamber of Commerce came in, and there were hushed meetings with the editors back behind those little glass cubicles. And <laughs> they were upset that the newspaper would be pointing this out. When Bob Adams made Phil Stanford an offer to work at Intercept Agency, basically replacing Clay Williams, Phil didn't suspect Intercept and its activities may actually have been responsible for Clay Williams being murdered and left to the alligators in the Everglades. At this point, I don't know exactly what it was that got him killed. So after his gruesome death, being warned by police detectives that you're getting involved with dangerous people, you end up taking the job of a man who was just murdered, dumped in the Everglades, and half-eaten by alligators. Yeah, I suppose you could look at it that way. And you realize that the murder of Clay Williams has never been solved. Yeah, apparently that's the case. So after you gave me his name, I put in a formal request for information on the case months ago, in January, with the Miami-Dade Sheriff's Office. And to date, they can't seem to find the file. I mean, they're still looking for it, but they believe it may have been misfiled or, or even lost. Now that's ridiculous. A cold case murder and they think maybe they lost the file? But you must have realized, even at the time, that something wasn't right. I wasn't thinking about that. I was at a point in my life where I was just sort of throwing my fate to the wind. It's one of those times when all your plans are coming to nothing, when nothing's working. Maybe the best plan of all is no plan at all. And I ended up working for Intercept. What could go wrong? More, it turns out, than Phil could have ever imagined. Because Intercept, that private investigation firm Phil now worked for, wasn't exactly what it seemed. But of course I had no way of knowing the detective agency would turn out to be a front for a major drug operation that was about to be indicted in federal court. Wow. And when the indictment came down, the guy they were working for, uh, this dashing drug pilot by the name of Lamar Chester, would claim he did it all for the CIA. Did he have proof? He said if they put him on trial, he was going to spill the beans on the CIA, and it would shake the foundations of the government to its core. Did he give you any idea of what kind of secrets he had? Well, that's where things start to get interesting and maybe a little bit dangerous, too. So... Clay wasn't the only person who wound up murdered? Oh, no. On the next Murder in Miami, months of researching the mysterious death of Clay Williams raises more questions than answers. It was a, a strange funeral anyway. Standing in the back end of the trailer were about four or five very big guys. Obviously, detectives, they were there to send a message. Stanford was all too willing to dive into the new role of private investigator. I'm just there to handle the stuff that comes in from the yellow pages so the rest of the guys can tend to the real business. Which was? Uh, the drug business, of course. This is Miami. And it was no big secret at all that their biggest client at the time was this dashing 
dope pilot by the name of Lamar Chester. He introduced me to Bob Adams and another fellow there. And I had understood from Clay that these were former intelligence people from the federal government, whether well, CIA, Army intelligence. They were all associated. I think that's how Clay got to know these people. Murder Miami is a production of iHeartRadio. Executive producers are Lauren Bright Pacheco, Taylor Shacoin, and Phil Stanford. Written by Phil Stanford and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Audio editing and sound design by Nicholas Harder, Evan Tyre, and Taylor Shacoin. Featuring music by Evan Tyre, Phil Mayer, John Murchison, and Taylor Shacoin. Archival elements provided by Lennon Lewis Wolfson II, Florida Moving Image Archives, and Film Archives Incorporated. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get the stories that matter to you. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.